Well, howdy, Huda Thunkers. I'm your host, Zeb. This is the Huda Thunkin Podcast, Season 2, Episode 8. Once again, there will be an accompanying blog post if you want to check that out. Link in the description. Welcome, and so before I get into this episode, which is going to be about NASCAR, I wanted to start something new for every podcast episode here on out. I want to call it, for now, I'm just calling it the Experience Recommendation Segment. It needs a better title, so if if you can think of a better title, let me know. But from now on, I'll be including a recommendation segment in every podcast where I recommend a TV show, movie, video game, book, or some other form of story or experience. This episode's experience recommendation is a book titled Educated. It's by Tara Westover. It's an audio autobiography of Tara's childhood. She was raised without a social security number, birth certificate, and never went to public school. Her family were her family were devout Mormons who believed more in preparing for the end times than succeeding in modern society. I didn't expect to like this book as much as I have, and I really uh, recommend that recommend that you check it out. <clears throat> I should I should admit that I don't read books as much. I do read sometimes, but I prefer to listen. Um, just while I'm walking, I prefer to listen to audiobooks, and it's it's um it's a good audiobook too, good recording. Anyway, back to the topic at hand, NASCAR. A good friend of co- a good friend from college requested I do a podcast episode on NASCAR, <clears throat> and I viewed it as a challenge. What tasty morsel of interest could I flesh out of a topic I had little to no interest in? Well, I was surprised to find that the world of NASCAR is chock full of stories that broadened my understanding of American history. Uh, that friend, his name is Velcro. Thanks for recommending recommending a. An episode Velcro. Not many people do recommend ideas, and I could use them. So, if you have a topic that um, you would like to hear an episode on, let me know. Even if it's something I'm not that interested in, I'll at least give it a give it a, a go. I'll look into it. If it doesn't work out, it doesn't. But if it does, that's cool. We sort of created something together. Your idea, my podcast. So, when NASCAR became a sport back in 1948, the attractive idea was <clears throat> that people could watch every day cars like Chevy's, Ford's, and Plymouth's race around at 150 miles per hour on a track. Instead of seeing these cars obey the speed limit, get stuck in traffic, or pick up groceries, people enjoyed watching them dangerously speed around corners and occasionally crash or flip through the air. And now, um, instead of 150 miles per hour, speeds at the Daytona 500 go over 200 miles per hour all the time. So it has progressed. This episode is going to be about the origins of NASCAR and its impact on American history. NASCAR started out on country dirt roads in the south of the United States. Junior Johnson, Buck Baker, and Buddy Schumann were some of the OG racers that started out not at, not on a sanctioned asphalt track, but speeding down the dirt roads, evading the police. Yeah, I know, pretty pretty crazy. These men hauled illegal moonshine across the United States trying to avoid government agents. Most of these moonshine haulers were teenagers who saw the illegal smuggling as a thrill, as well as an opportunity to make some money. And I always, as a kid, when I found that out that uh, NASCAR got its start in basically moonshine smuggling, bootleggers, I I was hard-pressed to think of any other sport that came out of illegal activity. There probably are some out there, tons of sports I don't even know about, but I I found that amazing. Illegal activity turned into a sport. Awesome. Now... But surprisingly, agent, uh, you know, some of these agents, the government agents, there's one named Joe Carter. Agent Joe Carter later went on to say how much fun he had chasing these boys in their souped up cars. 
One of the feats expected of a good moonshine driver or bootlegger was to complete a high-speed 180-degree 180, 180 U-turn on a 16-foot-wide backcountry road, which is not very, like, that's a very narrow margin to do a 180 turn. So guys were yanking the brake and just hauling at, hauling butt. <laughs> there is a movie that added romanticism to the moonshine hauling. It is called Thunder Road. It came out in 1958. So I, when I was looking through everything here, uh, that actually looked like a pretty cool movie, black and white movie about moonshine bootleggers. Uh, but the reality of moonshining, at least from those who lived it, say it was less of a spectacular thrill and more of a dangerous necessity. Back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, the Southeast the United States was very poverty-stricken, especially rural communities. Uh, most families had a moonshine still in the woods behind their house so they could feed the eight or so kids that they had to care for. These moonshine drivers took such dangerous risks on the road because... Them making a successful haul made the difference between their family eating or starving. Making the moonshine was a tough gig for these southern country folks, so getting it to market without being confiscated was of the utmost importance. So they started to, drivers or bootleggers started to invest more in their rigs, invest more in their escape with the goods. They hired moonshiners with inconspicuous, they hired bootleggers with inconspicuous cars that went fast. And the drivers would strip down the strip out the entire interior of their cars. Sometimes they're like 38 Fords, really old looking cars. We're talking like 30s, 40s and 50s here. And they would strip out the interior as to fit as much moonshine as possible into the car without it, the moonshine being visible from the windows. So, you know, inconspicuous. Halls ranged from 100 to, 100 to 180 gallons of white lightning almost always sealed in clear mason jars, big jars, the classic moonshine jar. It was common for drivers to invest upwards of $1,000 into their suspension just so their cars could bear the load. Now, $1,000 to you and me may not sound like much. Back 30s, 40s, and 50s, that's a buttload of money. So this is quite the industry right now, the moonshining and the moonshine bootlegging. But what they really put their money into was the engine under the hood. Their runner cars needed to be able to haul the extra weight and still be able to uh, outrun the government agents. Known as the revenuers, these government agents were stuck with economically efficient cars. Uh, the agents didn't stand a chance in their government issued cars because they had to top they had you know like top speed of about 80 miles per hour where and they were being dusted by moonshine drivers going 150 miles per hour their only hope was to confiscate a bootlegger's car to basically fight fire with fire isn't that like the government to issue economically efficient cars that don't stand a chance against their the people they're trying to catch so there was an economic situation down south that led impoverished people to crime to get by. That is nothing new to society, by the way. If you look back in history, bad times create worse times with crime. But then this underground society started enhancing automobiles past the point of officials out of necessity. As I said, government agents, people trying to track them down, can only go like 80 miles per hour. They had these good old boys souping up their cars so they could go 150 miles per hour, and their suspension was amazing. They could haul 100, 180 gallons of moonshine. So something kind of amazing came out of this. What do you think happened next to make the this culture of crime jump to an official sport? Well, <laughs> this is pretty easy to imagine. These testosterone-filled young guys with their souped-up cars started having metaphorical 
pissing contest among themselves to see whose car was fastest. Instead of just focusing on hauling the goods and making money, it went to uh, mine's a little bit faster than yours, you know. Rumor, I don't know where that accent came from, but rumors on which bootleggers' cars was the fastest started circulating right away. So it wasn't long until they started holding competitions on the weekends when they weren't running moonshine, typically on Sundays because everyone else is, you know, moonshiners aren't making moonshine these devout christians usually down the south they're not working on sunday so the bootleggers would drive their cars <clears throat> they'd race each other to see who had the fastest car usually on a sunday when the moonshiners were taking a religious break from working on their moonshine stills the bootleggers picked a field in the middle of nowhere cut a dirt track and placed bets on who had the fastest car no grandstands no checkered flags just a couple of hillbillies settling disputes over who had built the fastest machine that sounds amazing to me. That I find that fascinating. Those are the races that I would have loved to attend. Today, I, NASCAR doesn't fascinate me that much, but to go to one of those, a dirt track in the middle of nowhere, that would be amazing. Just a dirt track, cheap or no stands, knowing the guys driving the cars, the ones who built them. That's cool. Well, those bootleggers seem to be having a grand old time in that field, and the farm boys and factory hands started to take notice. You see, they had, they also had a knack for improving automobiles too, and they wanted a piece of the action. So we didn't just have bootleggers anymore, not just criminals. Now we have farmers, factory hands. You know, your uncles, your your brothers, your fathers are now getting into this. So it's becoming not just the underground doing this; it's society doing it for fun. Pretty soon, the tracks were surrounded by crowds looking for something fun to do after church on the Sundays. Um, I heard that, you know, down the south this time, it's not really that interesting of a place. You know, you could go to the movie, but it was how far to the next town because it was mostly just farming back in those days. So to hear someone doing dirt racks, dirt track racing be pretty interesting it didn't take long until dirt track stock car racing had become an american pastime the crowds roared every time a driver would play dirty by knocking another car out of the track or up against the wall they didn't play nice with each other there was not much honor amongst these thieves the sport was ruthless at times with drivers riding with revolvers strapped to their dashboards just in case a brawl broke out the racers themselves were typically regarded as roughnecks it took a long time before stock car racing could gain any kind of media attention because of this you know there it is starting to get into the society we have farmers and factory hands but it's still a rough and ready kind of kind of thing activity to do it's not something that it took a long time before it became a thing that was on your tv that your uncle was watching um one thing that helped with the media attention was Louise Smith, also known as the first lady of racing. Louise joined stock car racing when it was at its most ruthless. She did more than just help her own or held her own. Despite animosity from every male racer, Louise won 38 races in her career, and she was the victim of more deliberate wrecks than her male opponents. But she left the sport with the reputation of being tough as nails. She's a real cool character to come out of this. Now, as all this was going on, the Big Three of Detroit, which I didn't know what that mean meant, born in the 90s, the Big Three of Detroit, back, you know, these companies aren't as what they used to be. But back, th back then when you said the Big Three of Detroit, you meant General Motors, Ford, and Chrysler, huge industries that basically shaped, shaped the economics of, you know, the Midwest. <clears throat> and they start, these companies started to recognize the marketing value of having one of their cars 
win in these races in these like stock car races so especially in the south if a car won on sunday the sales for that brand of automobile would skyrocket by monday so the result is the sales trend had on the american automobile industry it and it still seen today you Basically, they were like, how do we make bigger, more souped up, cooler looking cars that win and then also sell? Well, car manufacturers started cranking out what came to be known as American muscle cars, like the Ford Mustang, the Chevy Camaro and the Plymouth Barracuda. These macho names became a trademark for muscle cars. So I'm not saying this is the only thing that made American muscle cars a thing. But it was one heck of an influence. And I did not know that. I just thought America, I know, like I said, born in 1993, I was. American muscle cars just were there. I never thought of what made them come into being. And it's not like any other country has a muscle car thing. Um, it, it, most other countries look for sleek and elegant, where America was just like gas guzzling, awesome sounding pow- <clears throat> power, horsepower. It was crazy. Now, I'm not a very big car guy, but these muscle cars are the coolest kind of car you can buy. I had no idea their design was heavily influenced by NASCAR. I was born in the early 90s, like I said, but back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, when these titans of the road were being made, <clears throat> the car manufacturers were targeting targeting younger American men. Their only question when they went to pick up pick up the car from the dealership was how fast does it go Uh, they didn't care about anything else you know no seat belts or anything not gas mileage how cool is this thing gonna gonna run and how cool am i gonna feel when i get in the in the driver's seat you know these beautiful muscle cars were sold so that wannabe racers could request custom parts to fulfill their exact racing desires i want this kind of gear shifter i want the this kind of steering wheel i want this kind of engine And the cars were usually being sold under warranty. That meant these young guys were treating brand new muscle cars like race cars, you know, effectively destroying the car, then taking them back to have the parts replaced because they're on warranty. So that it was a culture built around these. The American muscle car was widely popular in the 60s, 70s and 80s until insurance rates and emission rates. Um, turned them into relics of the past. I love to see the glint and joy in my dad's eye when he talks about his high school days of driving up and down his town's main drag for no other reason than to just drive his car and how he describes the dozens of his classmates in their own muscle cars doing the same exact thing. He he always talks about his one classmate who had a Barracuda and how cool it was, and he always played that song, Ooh, Barracuda. So it was these muscle cars, this... It sort of penetrated society itself and became a part of it. To me, NASCAR has always seemed kind of lame. Where other sports test the physical capabilities of the participants, I always imagine NASCAR racers as weak and slow. My reasoning, I mean, they only have to drive cars, right? I drive a car. How hard could it be? But that isn't the reality of this sport. It is full of amazing stories from the past and i realized the immense determination technical skill and grit these drivers possess possess in order for them to compete i think i'll have to do more episodes on nascar in the future i read about so many stories of racers getting second degree burns broken wrists and other painful injuries just to power through to the pain and finish their race I've included some visual aids and a YouTube clip of a mini NASCAR story on the accompanying blog post. I'll include the link uh, to that in the description, as I said. Thanks for listening, Huda Thunkers. Until next time, catch you later.